To give context for Pastor Matt's sermon uh, today, our scripture reading will begin in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, and go through verse 30. If you're looking in the uh, church Bible, the page number is 703, so please turn there now. And hear now God's word. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, Leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, for John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Good morning. So who went to Ukraine with me? Some of you have gotten out of bed. Oh, Kim came. It's like Lazarus. Um, so we had the privilege of spending 10 days in Ukraine. Our primary purpose 
was to gather around some missionaries that work with a sending organization called Send International. And I want you to know that as a pastor, I came, I came back as just thankful to be a part of this church. Um, not just for those who went. Um, talking to the Ukraine missionaries, they've had a really hard year. One of them lost, single woman who's been on the field for almost 30 years, lost her parents this year. Some key members of their team just sensed the Lord to lead them back to the States, but leaving the field and taking a small uh, team of Westerners made it even smaller. Some people have had some issues with children going through hard uh, marriage and divorce. Uh, It was a hard year for those missionaries And by the grace of God, by the end of the week, they said that they were encouraged. And that's through not just those who went, but many of you prayed, and we're thankful that you prayed. Many of you gave uh, large gifts to make this possible, and I just want to say thank you. I just feel very proud as a pastor and just overjoyed that God would use uh, dusty humans like us uh, to do the work of God. So it's it's good. It is good. I, I'm thinking about the text that we're going to walk through in just a bit. It, it's, uh, it's about what it means to be a true disciple, what it looks like to serve the Lord. And in John the Baptist's case, in losing his life. And so this is uh, coming at a, just a neat time in the history of this church to send a team, but also I think it's at a critical time in just the history of our church. Uh, we'll begin talking about it over the next number of Sundays, but as the elders have prayed and talked in our elder retreat this summer, the theme, you could say, for this year is going to be for uh, the joy, despite the cost, for the family. Serving God's church, those who are a part of it now and those who are yet to join the family of God. And we're going to see that in this text. And I pray that this text today encourages us. I pray that it sobers us. And ultimately it sends us. I really encourage you, I'm going to pray in just a second, but I encourage you to use this bulletin in the center. When you open up, there's a bunch of just their announcements, but they're also, I hope, pleased for you to pray. Uh, August is a heavy month. The worship team is meeting today. Tomorrow, leaders are gathering. Next Sunday, Sunday school teachers are having their planning meeting. Then next Monday night, the small group training. Like, they're just meetings unless the Holy Spirit shows up. And then they're, they're, they're powerful sending opportunities for people and ultimately the, the work of the Lord. These verses that are on banders are not supposed to be uh, trite ideas, but the mission of the church. To declare the Lord's glory among the nations and his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good and glorious God. There is no God like you. And you are worthy of the praise of the nations. You are worthy of honor and glory for all eternity. The angels and the saints, they sing together, worthy is the lamb who was slain, for by his blood he has bought men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. Jesus, you have bought 
people and you are worthy of glory. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would be honored today among the people here, but we pray that we would declare your name among the nations so that other nations and other peoples, whether they're in Marion and Lynn County or whether they are on the far side of this globe, that they would know that Jesus is worthy of their worship because he has died for them. So we pray, God, as we look at this text about one of your servants in the past, we would say, we pray that it would set us on a trajectory to serve like John served, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the famous uh, doctor and missionary who served in Africa named Dr. David Livingstone. Um, and... Uh, Later in life, after years of ministry, he was back in Cambridge and speaking to a number of students. This was on December 4th, 1857. In the 19th century, he was a hero to Britain. Many people marveled at the work of this great man who would lay down his life for the sake of Jesus in a very difficult, dark territory. But at the end of his life, this is what he proclaimed. And he said this, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. But can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. He says, say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I think John the Baptist is in heaven right now and he's saying, I never made a sacrifice. It was worth it. Because Jesus is worthy. I want to look at this text under three headings. A disciple's business, a disciple's trials, and a disciple's end. This is going to be true of John the Baptist, what's narrated for us and preserved in Scripture from the Gospel of Mark, but this is what's for us. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. A disciple of Jesus has a business. That is, he has a work to do. And we see John the Baptist faithful to his work. Now, the context of Mark 6 is helpful to understand, and Mark, uh, Pastor Randy uh, did a nice job last week of giving the picture at the beginning that Jesus, the Son of God, goes to his hometown, he goes to his 
home city, and he proclaims the same message of repentance and the kingdom of God and the call to trust the Son that he has been preaching all throughout Galilee, and yet few believe and few miracles are done there. And so Jesus, the Son of God, has a ministry, both in the nature of his life and his proclamation, and yet the people in his city do not believe. And it's at that moment where he takes his disciples and he says, guess what? I would like you to do what I have been doing. I am going to send you out to different cities and I want you to proclaim the good news of the kingdom so that others might know. But let me warn you, not all will welcome you. Not all will go well. And then Mark, while the there's almost like this interlude in the book. In your mind, you're supposed to be seeing the disciples, the original apostles. They're out. They're doing this work. They're preaching. They're laying down their lives for the gospel. They're preaching the same message, and it's supposed to like trigger in your brain. Well, what happened to John? We read about him in Mark 1, and he, he fell off the map. What's he doing? And Mark says, let me tell you where John is. Effectively, John is no more. But the reason John is no more is because he was faithful to do the work that God had called him to do. He was about his father's business. Later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, no longer do I call you servants. You're not servants. But I call you friends because I have taught you about the father's business. What is the business? Well, let's look at what John does. What did he do? Verse 14, it talks about that when King Herod hears of the disciples that have been sent out who are preaching about repentance and doing miracles and living just exemplary lives, he has a moment of conscience. Maybe John the Baptist is back from the dead. I thought I stopped this whole preaching repentance thing. Who is this Jesus? He's, he doesn't know Jesus yet, but he knows that there was a faithful man named John. And he thought he put John out of the picture, and yet his guilty conscience thinks that there's a ghost in the land, and maybe the ghost is coming for him. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this, the preaching, for Jesus' name had become well known, and some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work. Others said, well, he's Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when John heard about this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had bound him, put him in prison. Why? He did this because of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I'll say that again, verse 18. Why was John in prison? For he had told Herod, it is is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. 
but she was not able to. Verse 20, because Herod feared John. Did you catch that? He feared John. He protected him. Knowing him to be righteous and a holy man, And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. Do you see what's going on here? John is faithful to the Father's business, and I'd like to suggest that the Father's business is marked by godly living and gospel proclamation. Godly living, gospel proclamation, and they're married I preached on John 17 in Ukraine, and Jesus says in John 17, verses 17 through 19, he says, I want my saints, I want my disciples to be sanctified, set apart, and I want them sent. So we're to be sanctified and sent, right? Sent to do what? Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and to have a matching godly life to go with it. Friends, John was about his master's business. So much so that John is pointing at Herod, who was one of the four major rulers at the time in the land of Israel. His father was Herod the Great, who had been over all of Israel. But when Herod died, the kingdom was split up into four places. And Herod is this tetrarch, one of the four, northern Israel, Galilee. He's the reigning king. And what did John the Baptist do? He preached truth to power. It is not right for you to divorce and put away your wife and then to marry one of the other four tetrarchs, his brother Philip's wife. Can't do that. He's saying, repent. There's a king on the move. His name is Jesus. Repent, Herod. You cannot do this. And Herodias, the wife, wants him dead, but Herod fears this holy man. He knows that John is righteous. He knows that his his lips and his life match. And he's hesitant to do anything with this holy man. the Father's business. We're going to hold to truth with our life in our lips. So that's the idea of we're going to have lives without hypocrisy, godly lives. Years ago, there was a great Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. And Robert Murray McShane once said this, the greatest need of my people, dot, dot, dot. What do you think he said? Greatest need of my people, Brilliant preaching, an amazing small group ministry, a vibrant children's choir. Robert Murray McShane said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. I would submit to you that's the greatest need for you, husbands, for your children and wife. I'd submit to you that's the greatest need for you, mothers and wives, The greatest need for your employer this week is your personal holiness. The greatest need for your neighbor this week is your personal holiness. 
think a lot of times we're tempted to think that if I am going to effectively engage a neighbor or a friend or a family member in a way that will make Jesus attractive, we make compromises. Maybe we watch the shows they watch and drink the drinks they drink and go to the places they go. And, and there's times for that. The Lord sends people, right? Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. So don't hear me saying there aren't times and places where you go and you take the name of Jesus, but not where you compromise your virtue. What your employer needs, what your neighbor needs, what your family member needs is a Jesus freak. Because when God is gracious in someone's life who doesn't know him, they're like, the, the radar goes off or the, the alarm goes off and we realize normal life makes no one happy. Why do you want to be normal? Normal is substance abuse and divorce and depression and despair. Normal is uh, a constant life of scrolling and clicking and yet an empty shell of a soul. That's normal. So brothers and sisters, don't be normal. Be a f- Jesus freak. Because when that alarm goes off in your neighbor or coworker, and when their life hits the end, and they feel the weight of their despair, they don't want a normal coworker. They want a Jesus freak. They want a righteous man that they somehow fear, and on normal days they don't like them, but they like to listen to them, and they're drawn to them. John the Baptist was about his father's business. And so he hold true in his own life, in his own lip. But don't miss out too, he held out the truth with his lips. He did not compromise on Herod's behavior with Herodias. This was sin. This was wrong. This is so wrong that I will stand up to the most powerful person in my region and say, No, thus saith the Lord. And where did he get that truth? From the Bible. Shocking, I know. Leviticus 18.6. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. He's holding to the truth of Scripture found in the book of Leviticus. Verse 18.6. Leviticus 20.21 reads this way. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. Now many of you know that Leviticus 18 and 20 have very clear delineations on who and what God finds appropriate sexually. In Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20, we read incest of many forms is forbidden. Bestiality is condemned. This is also the first time the Bible condemns homosexuality specifically in chapter 18, just on the heels of the verse about not marrying a close family member. Verse 22 reads, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And just eight verses after the one about not marrying your brother's wife, Leviticus 20, 21 reads, uh, or sorry, Leviticus 20, 13 reads, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. And so John, in his generation, is just holding faithful to the consistent message of Scripture that God 
has preserved uh, the biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman. And in that context, the Bible and other places welcomes and encourages sexual delight. And John, in his generation, just stands on this is what God's word says. He's not going to compromise even for the king. I would encourage us when it comes to any issues like this that we would just not compromise because when the alarm goes off in someone's mind, heart, and soul, they'll come to the God of the Bible where there is freedom and grace and healing and renewal and life and joy where normal is death and despair and depression and we don't want that for anyone. I think John the Baptist, out of love, says to Herod, repent. That's the most loving thing he could say. Some Roman soldiers repented under the ministry of John the Baptist. Some tax collectors repented. Different people repented, but Herod did not. Um, The biblical term for this idea of lip and life matching uh, is the term be an ambassador. This is, again, something we talked about in Ukraine. Uh, A good ambassador for your country is just a superb representative of a good American citizen. I know that usually we just choose ambassadors because they were nice political friends, but it should be (laughs) a great American representing American ideals that you send around the globe, and in so doing, they dispel myths and stereotypes. They see the values of freedom and justice, and so these little embassies around the world are supposed to promote American ideals, and people say, well, let's be friendly with said nation. A number of years ago, a friend of mine was in Washington, D.C. with his family. They were looking at these different uh, museums and such, and they just came across some poster that said the Swiss embassy was having an open house. And so they're like, wow, that would be interesting. I'd like to know about Switzerland. And so they show up at the Swiss embassy for this open house, and no one else had showed up. Just them and the Swiss ambassador. And the Swiss ambassador welcomed them in and said, come in, it's nice to meet you. I'm an ambassador for Switzerland, and this is our embassy. Hey, come in here, sit down. We're going to watch this short little 10-minute video about Switzerland. And then they talked to him, and then at the end, you know what the Swiss ambassador said? you should come to Switzerland. We'd love for you to come to Switzerland. Now, my people, friends, they walked out of the Swiss embassy, and you know what they thought? I want to go to Switzerland. That sounds great. Friends, this is the business that we're in. You and I, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And we go out and we demonstrate what life is in the kingdom of heaven by our lives and our lips, And we we live such godly lives among the pagans, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, so much so that when God comes to visit us, they are glorifying the same God. That's the business. So go out and talk about repentance and life and joy about your God, about Christ, about the power of the Holy Spirit, and then say, do you want to come to heaven? Do you want to know my God? That's our business. And John was about... The Father's business. But within the disciples' business, there will be trials. So we know our business, the work that we're supposed to do, but amid the work and amid the business, you will suffer. 
2 Timothy 2.13, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John the Wesley, the great founder of Methodism, believed that verse so much that if he went a few days without being persecuted, he wondered if he had been faithful. The trials of John the Baptist begin by he preaches and Herod arrests him. And he's thrown in prison. And we know that he never changed his tune because he remains in prison. Interestingly enough, every now and again, Herod slipped down to hear what he was saying. But the trials get worse. Verse 21 says, finally the opportune time came. And there's a birthday. Herod invites all these distinguished officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the, the king said to the girl, this is some sort of pompous commitment, right? Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. This is how powerful I am. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, well, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist. I want his head. And then at once the girl hurried to the king and with the request. So all these military commanders, all these officials, you just made this big oath. Mr. Pompous, high, powerful king, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist. And the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, remember this scaredy cat who wouldn't kill the godly man? Well, now a different fear. He fears his reputation. And this sham king says, well, bring me the head. And the man went and beheaded John in the prison. You will face trials in this world, in this world says Jesus. One thing I appreciated that Jeff Olson recognized when we were driving back uh, from Ukraine, I think we were, in, we were sitting in Poland, and we were reflecting on what are we seeing about these Ukrainian missionaries. And Jeff was right. They are just like us. One of the most helpful things for you to realize is that missionaries struggle with every emotion you have. They probably struggle reading their Bibles and praying and anxiety. They say things they wish they didn't say. Like you, you, sometimes it's really kind of weird. You're like, did that, was that missionary complaining? I thought they're not, you know, they're supposed to be godly. Well, it turns out they're human. <laughs> and these humans, because of God's call on their life, has said, I'm going to go be human in another country. God calls, they go. I wonder, is God calling you to global missions? I want, I, I, my prayer for a long time is that we could plant a church in another town. Will you just move to another town? Would you take your comfortable house that you like and would you sell it and move 20 miles? 
Maybe you need to move 5,000 miles. But would you go if God called? But here's the thing. The trials, they just shift whether you live here or there. But you will face trials. And you will face temptations. If you think about um, what, what do I mean by trials? Well, one side of it is just, just normal, subtle temptations. Um, <laughs> think about it again. What does God want? God wants to declare the Lord's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. This is his mission. It's driving us to share Christ in our schools and our workplaces. It's driving us to get the gospel to those people groups who have never heard it. That's, that's God's business. That's God's intent. And guess what? The devil will happily leave you alone if you're just happy in the little world that you are and distracted from God's good mission. He'll leave you alone. If you want to Netflix binge and never pray in your Bible, he'll just like, hey, just keep binging. Enjoy that. You want to spend the whole year focusing on the money that you're, you need to save so you can go on a big family vacation? The devil will be like, you You go. I might even give you a little more money so you can spend a few more days distracted from things that are of eternal perspective. So there's the subtle ones, just to keep us disengaged from the, the Father's business. And then, then there's the direct ones. This is direct persecution or, you know, a, a, a trial that, the, that God in his sovereignty gives Satan a long leash at times and he lets Satan come get you. I don't know why, but he does. And so you have these subtle ones, and you have these direct ones, these different trials. And we have to be careful. There was an old Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks. He wrote a book in 1652 called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He writes this. Do not you see that there are none in the world that are so vexed, afflicted, and tossed as those that walk more circumspectly and holily than their neighbors? It's a funky language from a Puritan. But he's saying Satan loves to tempt you for you to think that you, are more su- that you suffer and are more afflicted than those around you. And those who try to live godly lives, it'll be even worse. They are a byword at home and a reproach abroad, their misery come in upon them like Job's messengers, one upon the neck of another, and there is no end of their sorrows and troubles. Therefore, saith Satan, you were better to walk in the ways that are less troublesome and less afflicted, though they are more sinful. For who but a madman would spend his days in sorrow, vexation, and affliction when it may be prevented by walking in the ways that I, Satan, set before you. Trials. We don't know, but I have to think John the Baptist was being tempted by the enemy just to change his tune for Herod. And so what are we tempted by? What trials are we given that we're tempted to make it lighter or make it easier, but effectively lose the truth of the gospel? of who Christ is and what he has done and what God is calling for us. So we have, a fa- we have the Father's business, and if we're about the Father's business, you will face trials. 
I wonder if maybe sometime this week you would just take 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour and just pray and maybe write, you know, make a column on your piece of paper and what are the subtle temptations that I'm facing? What are the direct attacks? There's a line from a movie a number of years ago, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make the world believe he did not exist. So come awake to the reality of the enemy. What are the subtle temptations in your life? What are the direct attacks? And begin to pray that you would be about the Father's business through the trials. Through the trials. Hebrews 12, 11. Discipline never seems pleasant at the time, always painful. But later, it yields the fruit of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. Father's business is before us, so... Part one, a disciple's business. Two, a disciple's trials. And three, let's talk about a disciple's end. Verse 27, so immediately Herod sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. And he presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. John's life ends in death. That maybe you're familiar with the line, all men die, but few men truly live. I don't want to discourage you today, but I want you to be prepared. You're all going to die. And healthy living is just the, the, the slowest way to die. So death is the reality. We're going to die. I mean, we pray that Jesus comes, and when he comes, we'll be made like him. And so a few of you, a few of us, might escape death. But so far, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we all die. But that's the key, isn't it? Jesus didn't die. Before the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he will live. And that's why John the Baptist was faithful. He knew he was going to die. He was willing to die. But he knew there was a Messiah coming. He didn't know everything about the Messiah, but he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. One of the things that he knew is when he saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That lamb was going to die, and in so dying, he takes our guilt, he takes our shame, he takes our death, so that the one who believes in Jesus will never die. Years ago, there was an early faithful uh, Christian by the name of Polycarp. He was a, became a Christian in uh, the first century, actually, then lived about 80 plus years before a Roman proconsul in Smyrna, which is now modern Turkey, in his late 80s, he was pressed, deny Jesus. Quit talking. Quit being about the Father's business. And they marched him into a stadium, and they warned him that he would be eaten by wild beasts if he held to his Christian faith. And Polycarp replied, 86 years I have been Jesus' servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
the account I read goes on to say, once more the proconsul urged Polycarp to swear by Caesar. And this time Polycarp replied, since you pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I will be happy to make an appointment. Furious, the proconsul said, don't you know I have wild beasts waiting? I'll throw you to them unless you repent. And Polycarp answered, bring them on then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Next, the proconsul threatened to burn him alive. And to this, Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire, which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do what you wish. That was Polycarp. And that was in the second century. But there's been other men like them who have said that they were going to be faithful. One of the men that I have read about and really appreciate over the years are the Protestant reformers in Britain in the 17th century. One of them was the man named Hugh Latimer and another one named Nicholas Ridley that were faithful until... The tide turned, and these Protestant reformers were on the outs, and they were sentenced to burning at a stake themselves. And amidst the flames, Hugh Latimer turns to Ridley because unfortunately, Ridley was burning but not dying, and he was in great despair. And Hugh Latimer turns to Ridley and says, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall see this day light, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. We're all going to die. But because Christ died and rose again, we shall live forevermore. And this is why Paul, while he's sitting in prison one day, you know what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. He's ready. Are we ready? We're going to die. There will be an end. But those who are about the Father's business, when they take their last breath or when they take a bullet, they will open their eyes in a new place. And by God's grace and for His glory, there will be a message. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your heavenly Father. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, I am thank you that John the Baptist lives how I want to live. But the reason John the Baptist lived and died as he did is he believed in Messiah Jesus. And so I don't want to just Think like, go out and be like John the Baptist. That's not the answer. The answer is to believe in Jesus like John did. Believe in the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. Believe that he is the one worthy of worship and honor and glory. That I want my life and my lips to match the priceless life and lips of Jesus. So I pray for my brothers and sisters today that we would be about the Father's business. I pray for those searching for life and hope and forgiveness, that they would realize their hope and life will only be found in Jesus. But to know that Jesus welcomes all who come to him. 
and he wipes away our sin and renews us and calls us into his family and calls us into the Father's business. And so I pray that if anyone doesn't know Jesus and haven't submitted to him, they would just come to the welcoming arms of God. That welcome has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and they will be warmly welcomed. And that is good news. In Jesus' name, amen.